Welcome to the Theatre Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Ward, and every week I'll be reviewing and discussing live theatre. Could be musical theatre, could be a play, could be dance. I'll be reviewing it all. Today's episode looks at Daniel Fish's reimagined version of the Rogers and Hammerstein classic Oklahoma, which is playing at the Young Vic Theatre in London. I saw this show on a hot, humid summer day in June 2022, and the show absolutely fit the day. Now, before I get into the review, I have to be completely transparent and say that I have always been haunted in a bad way by Oklahoma. And I think this was due really to my first six months at theatre school. And we were given the choice of two songs for our audition class, one of which was Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Our vocal teacher took all the joy out of that song and frankly out of singing. So I've never really been able to listen to this show since then without being reminded of her. However, this production has made me reconsider my view on Oklahoma, although not necessarily on that vocal coach. But let's find out why. So this production has been described as stripped back because of its bare presentation style. But I would suggest it's been very carefully peeled open to reveal the dirt and darkness that was always at its heart. It's always been kind of hiding in plain sight. Oklahoma, the show, originally opened in 1943 on Broadway at a time when the world was at war. It was arguably the first show to truly integrate book, music, song and dance and use all those elements to drive forward the narrative and inform characterization. Many people, many observers have seen Oklahoma as the start of the so-called golden age of musical theatre. So the story on the surface is quite a simple one. We've got our good old boy, the cowboy Curly, trying to win the heart of farm girl Laurie by overcoming competition from the hired hand Judd. This story, this triangle, is perfectly counterpointed by the comedic triangle of Ado Annie, Ali Hakim and Will Parker. And meantime, we've got Aunt Ella on hand to dish out some homespun wisdom. It's kind of a romp through our best-loved, nostalgic Western tropes, the box social, farmhands, cowboys and a rip-roaring couple of hoedowns. Top it all off with a good versus bad battle and you got yourself a musical, Ma. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Sounds like a cousin of... Little House on the Prairie. But now I can see that Oklahoma always had so much more going on. It's like they said, what if we take our lead characters and shine a different light on them? And in the case of this production, that is a very bright, unflattering light. And we see the humanity tucked away underneath. And I think it is shining this light, looking for this humanity, looking for this truth that is the key to the success of Daniel Fish's creative vision for the piece. It always was and still is regularly seen as a comforting story of pioneering folk surviving out on the plains. It's been seen as a metaphor for the founding of a nation as the territory of Oklahoma strives to be recognised as a state. It's kind of a hark back to the good old days. And maybe it was a traditional good versus evil story. But it was tough to be out there on the plains. There was a lot of bad stuff that was happening to people. And I think what Daniel Fish draws out here are attitudes towards outsiders or maybe non-conformists and attitudes towards sex and the area where those two subjects interact. 
And if we start with the attitude to outsiders or non-conformists, it's something definitely that resonates with our times, although it's not overt or telegraphed or even political. We see it in the way that Judd is treated as less or other because he is just, in inverted commas, a farmhand, a hired hand at that, a lower form. He's neither an owner nor a skilled worker. There's no sense of trying to understand his humanity or his desire to better himself. He needs to know his place. He's here to work on the farm and that's it. It puts me in mind of agricultural labourers who may have come from somewhere else to work on farms but end up living in mobile homes or temporary accommodation as they are on the farm to work. They're commoditized and dehumanised in much the same way that Judd is. There's even a song that's almost treated as a joke in traditional versions of the show. The song's called Poor Judd is Dead. But in this version... The song is a cruel threat played in darkness with a brutal close-up of Judd's face projected onto the back wall like some close-up intense form of cyber-bullying. Because poor Judd is just a farmhand and this discrepancy in agency and status is so clear, it becomes one of the show's main narrative drivers. In fact, at one point, Laurie, the, the farm girl, fires Judd and sends him away because she's scared of him. She's scared of the outsider. But that is also what leads us to the other important theme that Daniel Fish reveals hiding in plain sight here. And that's sex. This show is about a group of horny young people cooped up in a settlement and cooped up in restrictive ways of behaving. We have Ado Annie, who's accepted that she can't say no to male attention, and this empowerment seems to scare the menfolk as much as it shocks Laurie. Again, what theatre writer Jack Viertel described as a mild case of nymphomania is not taken seriously in traditional readings, because, you know, it's kind of funny, ain't it, that a woman might want to have sex? But here, it's deadly serious. It's so serious that it involves guns and money. Laurie, meanwhile, whose sexual desires are simmering away like one of the hot pots she's preparing, does not have the tools to deal with her attraction to these two different men, Judd and Curly. But then again, who does? She knows kind of what she should do, but, and many of us have been there too, there are forces at play that she cannot necessarily control. Does she believe that by going with Judd to the box social, she'll make Curly feel jealous and want her more? Or does she think that somewhere, somehow, there is a chance to make things work with Judd? Aunt Ella, the matriarch in the piece, certainly doesn't consider Judd worthy of her attention. He's just a hired hand. He's an outsider. Again, that word, outsider. But Judd's humanity is demonstrated when he offers all the money he has to buy Laurie's hamper at the auction. He's hurt by her rejection of him and by the fact that his humanity is ignored. The final scenes bring this hot pot to the boil in violent and crude ways. But once again, there is nothing in this production that was not laid out in the original script. Daniel Fish and his team have posed the questions, the key to creative thinking, everyone. They have asked the right questions. I hope you're enjoying this edition of the Theatre Review Podcast. I would love you to subscribe. And remember, subscription is absolutely free. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Theatre Review Podcast. Look forward to seeing you there. And now back to the review. This show and its production succeeds also on its characterization. This characterization is the foundation of the piece. And I love this look, this sideways look or deeper look at what these characters could mean. 
What if Judd and Curly's roles were not so black and white? What if Curly, instead of being our hero cowboy that everybody loves, was just an arrogant, entitled prick? Which is what he is in this playing. And let's be honest, he kind of always came across a little bit this way, but also because the folk around him allowed him to be like that. And Arthur Carville, the actor who, who plays Curly, is a dynamic force in this show. He imbues Curly with that touch of likability that so many successful entitled people have. However, the approach to Judd, for me, was the most compelling. Judd comes out of the shadows, and instead of his presence becoming a fulcrum around which much of the drama is played, he's actually given a physical presence. He is present on the stage the whole time, watching, observing, understanding, but never really seen or considered by the other characters. Once again, back to my point about the outsider. He's here to serve. He's here to work. He's here as a resource. Patrick Vale's interpretation of Judd is powerful and heartbreaking. He fights to be seen, to be heard, to be accepted. And Patrick Vale is frankly mesmerizing, reaching deep to unleash an emotional flood that felt like it took the audience by surprise. There we're thinking, wait a minute, isn't this guy supposed to be bad? But look at him, feel his pain, feel his desire and feel this performance as it rips apart your expectation of what this character can deliver and replaces your expectation with something bigger, something more brooding and brimming with electricity. I can totally understand why the production brought Patrick Vale across from New York and his performance is one that London audiences should cherish. I talked about how we understood more of the sexuality of the characters in this show, which I also think adds to the truth of the piece. Now, Laurie could be played as the squeaky clean traditional gal, but Anushka Lucas gets into Laurie's head and heart. She shows us the sultry, sensual and frankly sexy side of Laurie. As I said before, the side that is difficult to understand and control. Laurie doesn't understand, I don't think, what she wants, but she's dying to get it anyway. Anushka Lucas is incredible at showing us this pent-up passion and the gradual releases of it. I promise you will never hear people will say we're in love the same way again. But her performance, as sexy as it is, has much more to it. I felt in the second act she had more of a realisation of the power that sexuality can bring and then the damage that that can cause when used indiscriminately. And despite the feeling that traditionally Ado Annie, Will Parker and Ali Hakim might be secondary characters serving almost as a mirror to the main event, there is less sense of that in this playing of the show. Marisha Wallace plays Ado Annie with a nice dose of sass, but where a lesser performer might be satisfied with that, Marisha Wallace takes us deeper into this psyche. It's a real problem for her character. She's had a taste, after all, she can't say no, and she wants more. And there is no apology in Marisha Wallace's characterization. Why should there be? She is totally committed. I loved what she did with this, uh, with this part. We see a woman who's much more at peace with her physical desires than Laurie. And although she might be slightly confused about them, the major conflicts seem to go on around her, whereas at least Laurie's conflicts are all internal. We also meet Ali Hakim. He's another outsider, sometimes seen as a purely comedy role. But here... Stavros Dimitraki brings power and sensuality as well as playing the comedy really well. Will Parker completes the triangle with James Davis capturing the innate comedy in this role, but not making Will just another silly musical comedy fool guy. He gives him depth and fight, which I also felt was much more truthful. 
The look, the feel, the sound of this production are all elements that have been reimagined. The municipal gym hall feel of the auditorium with light woods and bright lights feels stark at first, but the scenic elements come to you. There's an incredible mural on the back wall. It's a stunning piece of art. And the guns on display around the space remind you of the times the piece is set in, but also how the West was won. With full lights on for most of the show, there really is nowhere to hide for the cast, the audience, or the characters. And this feels like an important part of the show's energy. It also allows huge contrast for scenes to be played in total darkness. Although, to be honest, after a couple of times, this felt maybe a little gimmicky and could be worth revisiting. The dream ballet sequence at the opening of Act 2 was danced amazingly by uh, Marie Mentz. She is absolutely incredible. What a talent. My challenge was I didn't quite get it. I, I know what it's supposed to mean. I just didn't quite get it. The opening Jimi Hendrix-style guitar felt less authentic than the rest of the show musically because it took us to a recognisable place, Jimi Hendrix, Woodstock, all that kind of thing, but I couldn't connect that place with the rest of the show. However, the dance piece was incredible. Also, I really appreciated Therese Warden and Rachel Townsend's costume designs. There's a lack of showiness, which I think was a bonus, because these are folks that would wear functional clothes, and even their going-out clothes would not be too glamorous. I've always felt that sometimes we, we try to do glamour in big numbers, and we've got to look at what would the character have worn, and I think Therese Warden and Rachel Townsend absolutely captured that, and their designs totally added to the truth of the piece. The bluegrass-style band lent much more authenticity to the show, and by switching to rough, over-amped sounds for a couple of pieces, again, we felt the dramatic emphasis and truth. Clearly, this is pioneer time, so everything should be a little rough and ready. For me, the music reconceived in this style by Daniel Kluger brings much more truth to the piece than perhaps a full musical theatre orchestra would, and I think it's one of the key elements to the piece's success. This is a visionary piece of work. It's not an Oklahoma for our times, but it is a group of creatives and performers who have dug into the show, not changed a word or a song, but have been able to reveal depths, themes and truths that are there and then have been able to bring them into the light. For the first time in my life, I can say that I love Oklahoma. Thank you for listening to the Theatre Review Podcast. I would love you to subscribe. And don't forget, you can follow us on Instagram at the Theatre Review Podcast. Let me know what you think, what you think I should review, and if you'd like me to review your show. I'll see you next time on the Theatre Review Podcast.